From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. Hello, friends. This is Michael Bond, and I'm joined by pastors Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Hey, guys. Hello. Okay, so we're going to talk about self-denial, hell, and divorce. So this is going to be a cheerful one. <laughs> Aren't they always? Light, it'll be a lighthearted <laughs> romp. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Jesus says that if your eye causes you to stumble, you should tear it out. And if your hand causes you to stumble, you should cut it off. For it's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I think self-denial, when practiced incorrectly, can result in neurosis, which is like stress, anxiety, depression, or obsession. So you, mm-hmm. most people listening to this have probably, they probably know someone who suffers this kind of thing. Um, and it may be a direct consequence of their uh, religious beliefs. Now, I think we see inappropriate self-denial in scripture through the Pharisees sort of hedging the law and also the early church disagreeing on which foods were acceptable. How do you determine the balance between grace and self-denial in such a way that promotes spiritual well-being? Okay. You want to you go first? <laughs> I mean, you kind of talked about self-denial actually just a couple of weeks ago in our services. So Yeah. Um, so I, I think sacrifice has got to be a huge part of who we are as Christians because it was a huge part of who Jesus was, right? Right. So, um, we cannot, we cannot discount that at all. Um, but I think it comes back to motivation. It comes back to whatever, what is our expectation of the, uh, fruit of the sacrifice? Cause sometimes we sacrifice cause it's like now God will owe me. So like, Hey, I'm going right. to fast or I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to forsake this or, um, even I think to some degree, um, Hey, well, I'm going to forsake marriage or sexual intimacy or whatever it is. And I'm going to be so holy or so pious that then God will, right. I'll have a pipeline. And so like, obviously, and I think that's some of what you got into with the uh, Pharisees, like, Hey, my, my sacrifice will produce, um, favor with God. Like, because I'm going to sacrifice whatever it is, uh, or live in such a way, then God will be beholden to mm-hmm. me, basically. And that's the that's the danger of that because it can become, um, it can become pharisaical, right? It can become mm-hmm. just legalism. Um, but if we understand sacrifice in the context of relationships and health and what it means for us to uh, lay down something I love for something I love more, then it can become really something really beautiful and meaningful and and produce wholeness in relationships and in our relationship with God. And, but anytime I think we look at it as a way to go, okay, now God's going to owe me or, you know, I'm going to tithe. Now God's going to owe me or it's like, no, 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 no. God, God doesn't owe you no matter what you do. Yeah. And this is a, I see this as an easy trap to fall into in some sense, because there is an there is a type of sacrifice that we do on a worldly scale like we go to work we do mm-hmm. jobs as a transaction right and, and so people who are outside the faith understand sacrifice from that point of view mm-hmm. and it's also the case that we see scriptures that seem to indicate that if we walk in the ways of godliness that mm-hmm. we would prosper yeah. um but it's the there's something that's there's a step that's skipped there somewhere where we decide to take control over the 
fact that we might prosper and mm-hmm. we make it into a transaction that we govern. And mm-hmm. so yeah. then that's where the error occurs yeah. in my understanding. Yeah. It's kind of this deal where even our self-denial is about us, mm-hmm. which yeah. is, yeah. you know, yeah. it's um, ironic. like I, the most extreme example I ever saw, I remember I went to, I went to, uh, you know, ministry school and there was a guy at our, he was actually on my hallway in the dorm um, who had come from a, a Muslim background and there was kind of this ascetic idea, right? Where like really extreme self-denial kind of thing that gets you, you know, favor with God, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what his particular issue was, what it was that he was praying about or fasting about. Um, but I remember watching him start losing weight and like he was... He would go. There was a prayer room at the end of the hallway on our on our in our dorm, and he would spend hours and hours in there. Which on the surface you go, man, that that's yeah. that's incredible, right? That's yeah. great. But uh, eventually, <laughs> he had to be admitted to uh, a psychiatric hospital against his will mm-hmm. because he would not listen to wisdom. He would not listen to good counsel. He was not only denying himself of food but water as well. And he, I mean, he was. He was a mess, right? Um, and, uh, you know, whatever he was praying for, he'd not received the answer that he was wanting, at least, uh, and and continued to follow this path, you know, to, to a dangerous degree. Um, and so, you know, that's the most extreme example that I've seen, uh, where someone who's, like, they're really committed to this idea that if I do this, then God's going God's gonna to do what I want. Uh, and he wasn't getting what he wanted, and there was something, you know. And for most of us, you know, the the, the switch flips the other way. It's like, well, if I don't get what I want in forty eight hours, I'm gonna go have some cake, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but for him, it went the other way, and it was a really dangerous kind of thing. Yeah. It was kind of scary to watch, really. Do you think that the transactional part of this tends to fall on the positive side? Like, if I do this, then God will do this. And I'm going to bargain with God in that sense. The way that we bargain with the future whenever we go to work or whenever we do something, we sacrifice now so that we can have an improvement in our future. Do you think it falls on the positive side more often than it falls on the negative side? Because it seems to me like there's a negative side to this too. So one way of thinking about this would be um, the purity culture, like teaching purity the wrong way causing people to to view sex as a bad thing even in the context of marriage mm-hmm. as if mm-hmm. it's undignified or dirty or uh you know not befitting of a follower of christ yeah and that's an error that's mm-hmm. an error in the in the yeah. teaching and yeah. so it seems to be the case that people can get stuck with this i i call it bug smasher theology like if if i if i don't walk in just the right way or if i don't, right. don't deny all these things for myself then God is going to smite me or there's going to be all these situations that come up in my life. And it's like, you're not totally wrong about that (laughs) in some sense, because if you, if you imbibe in all forms of wickedness, then you're going to reap what you sow. Right. Right. But there has to be kind of a way to walk through this, that there has to be a mode of being that we can adopt that ensures that we don't uh, develop an obsession with the negative or, this yeah. view that we can purchase our salvation or mm-hmm. we can purchase blessings from God. Yeah, I mean, well, that's exactly what happened with Pharisees, right? They kept the letter of the law, but they missed the heart of the law, 
right? Which was that the law was designed, you know, if you if you know, listen to what Paul has to say, to show us our sinfulness, to cause us to recognize our dependence on God and recognize our need for his grace and his mercy and see his beauty in that. Right? But rather than seeing that, they just saw if I keep these rules, then I will be righteous. Then God will owe me something, right? Uh, and, and that's the trap that we can fall into as well. And so then self-denial, again, like I said before, comes, it becomes about us. Rather than about being about mortifying the deeds of the flesh, to borrow an old phrase, right? Rather mm-hmm. than killing the things in me that aren't like God and pursuing Christ-likeness, we... Well, we make it about us. Like right. if, if I can if I can just be good enough, if I can just do all of these things, then I will get what I want from God. Or the the flip side of that is if I'm unable, right? If if I falter, if I fail to to meet all these requirements, then then you know, uh then God won't love me. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh and both of those extremes are are false. Right. What we find is that we all like I I can't be good enough. I'm dependent on the mercy of God. And then on the other side, because I am not good enough, Jesus has made a way for me. Uh, And and so what Christ does is call us from both of those extremes into a place of trusting in him where we we are working to to deny ourselves, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, right? To become more like Christ, to turn away from sin, turn toward Christ. We're working toward that because of the grace that God has given us. But we don't we don't move into pride either when things are going well because we recognize that it's God who's given me the the grace to do this if I if if I do it at all. Where would you say that self-denial stops? For a person, because we talked a little bit about asceticism, and I think, like, I had known a priest of, I think he was of the Franciscan order, and he just didn't do anything that uh, an American would do. His life was completely mm-hmm. different, and it was in the name of self denial. That was right. the whole purpose of it. And he probably would say that he lives a blessed life because of that, and mm-hmm. that he lives a more true life than a Protestant American. Yeah. Um, but that's a way different existence. And so is he, has he gone too far? Is there some subjectivity to this? Is it dependent on our own relationship with God, the degree to which we deny ourselves, or is there a bar that we should be trying to hit? Yeah, I don't think there's a set standard that it's like, okay, here's how we should all be denying ourselves or be living, you know, sacrificially or, you know, self-sacrificially or whatever. I think at the end of the day, it really comes back to, um, you know, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? Like saying, God, uh, hey, I, I will do whatever you ask me to do, and I'll be faithful to do whatever it is you ask me to do. And I think God probably does ask some people to make some extreme um, sacrifices in their life. And, you know, so for the people that, like your Franciscan friend, okay, great. If that's what God has asked him to do and yeah. he's being obedient to that, wonderful. Um that's really good, but the danger comes when we, um, when we demonize the things that others aren't willing to do, and and there are some obviously there are some lines that we go, hey, we've got grace, but um, you know we can't abuse that in the name of grace, right? Um, so, 
we should be willing to say open-handedly, God, whatever it is in my life that you would like me to lay down, you know, whether it's modern conveniences or comforts or whatever it is, I'm willing to do that because I love you more than I love being comfortable or I love you more than I love pleasure or I love you more than I. And so I think it's not necessarily that all of us should do that as much as it is, are we all willing to do that? You know, would you, if God asked you to, and sometimes I don't think, you know, unless he actually does. Right. Yeah. So so maybe it's dependent on the degree to which a thing possesses you. Yeah. So if, you know, for instance, I have a thermos of coffee sitting next to me and I drink a lot of coffee every morning. Um, but if I was on the extreme end of coffee addiction to where I just, everything about me. I was wearing a coffee t-shirt. Um, I was going to have a coffee it, man. thumbnail on this podcast, mm-hmm. like everything yep. to yeah. where it, the idea of coffee itself began to possess me so much that my first allegiance was to coffee mm-hmm. and not to Christ. Then for me, self-denial with coffee would be a good idea. Absolutely. Whereas with virtually any normal person, it just wouldn't even be a thought. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I don't drink coffee. So that's not a, that's right. not a stumbling block for me at all. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a point well made um, because it's going to look different for different people. Um, and I, I was telling somebody just yesterday, I was talking to somebody who um, the guy is not a Christian. Uh, his his girlfriend and this guy's in his 70s, but this girl that, that he lives with, she's a faithful Catholic. And I asked him, I said, you ever go to mass with her? And he was like, no, I told her one time that I, I gave up going to mass for Lent. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think that's how that's supposed to work. And I told him that uh, when Abby was about four, we were driving home from church during our 21 days of prayer and fasting. And she said, daddy, I've decided to give up naps for, for, for the fast. And I was like, yeah, that's not how that works. You can't give up stuff you want to give up. Like, you know, yeah. like I want to give up helping around the house, you know, and doing yard work. I want to give that up for... It's like, no, 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 no. It's only the stuff that you love that could become idolatrous if you're not careful. And, and that's what you're talking about. Like, so it's going to look different for everybody. Yeah. So does that mean pastorally that, uh, you know, someone who's trying to lead a congregation that the onus is on them to help give an accurate inventory of each person who's a member of their church? I, I mean, I know that doesn't scale very well, but is it, is this up to the individual to do this on their own or should the pastor take an active role in trying to determine what is gripping each person or does that have to be dependent on an invitation into their life? Okay. When I was a youth pastor, I used to police what my kids would listen to. Like, you know, they would listen to certain music and I'd be like, you got to stop listening to that music. Um, and what I realized is I wasn't helping them. I wasn't maturing them. I was just I was limiting behavior and that, that doesn't help. And so what I realized is I need to help them mature so that I don't have to be the one to police what they're listening to so that they'll go, Hey, maybe this isn't the right thing for me to be listening to. And so I've I've taken that approach even as the pastor to go, Hey, I can tell you things you should or shouldn't do, but it's way better if I can help you see what you should and shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's pastor's responsibilities to help our church understand the benefits of living uh, the life that we're talking about, you know, and not that again, that we're sacrificing everything and that we go live a monastic life, but that we're, we're open enough with what we have uh, that we say, anything I have, I will, I will give up. And then 
help them see that and then help them um, take inventory for themselves and be able to say, hey, are there things in my life I love a little too much? Are there things in my life that I would really struggle to lay down? Then maybe it would be a good exercise for me to lay those things down during a fast for a season. And, you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, Paul told the Philippians, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, You know, he... He, that that verse he you know it's well it's Philippians two twelve he says you know just as you as you have always obeyed so now not only in my presence but even more so in my absence so he said hey you know you guys were doing this when I was there but do it even more so when I'm not there to to call you on the carpet so to speak mm-hmm. or to say hey this is this might not be good or whatever he says so he says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and I think that's the responsibility that we have as followers of Christ for each of us to be allowing the Holy Spirit to examine our heart and to be looking at our lives in light of the, you know, the Word of God. I mean, Jesus talked about how that, you know, remove the plank from your own eye before you try to remove the speck from someone else's eye. And I I think it is healthy for us to all assume that I have a plank in my eye, right? And approach the Word of God in that way and approach my, my life and my relationship with the Holy Spirit in that way. Like, God, there are things that I that I may not even see. There's There are huge issues that I may not even be aware of. I need you to show me. I want you to show me. Help me to be more like you. And I think that's the way that we have to approach it. Man, it's really dangerous. And I've, I've seen it. I've witnessed it as a kid when pastors start to preach extra biblical things, right, that aren't necessarily bad. Maybe they have a conviction about it. So take television, for example, <laughs> right? I knew a whole group of people uh, who... Nobody in the church, you know, I say nobody in the church. Let me let me back up. They weren't supposed to own TVs, right? That's mm-hmm. because that's what the pastor was preaching. TV's evil. TV you don't have it. It's a tool of Satan, and 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 so that was his conviction. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, my wife, for example, about three years ago, quit watching television. Not because she felt television was evil, but she felt like God's calling her. Like, there's better things I can do with my time. I can give that time to the Lord. That's a good thing. That's a good impulse. But when we start just saying, TV's evil, everybody right. get rid of it. Well, what happened was that, well, those who got rid of the TV felt justified. Like, oh, look, I'm, I've checked off the thing that makes me holy. But then there were other people who just, well, we'll just hide a TV in the closet. When the pastor's mm-hmm. here, he won't know, and we'll you know. Yeah, hide the beer. The pastor's here. Yeah. Who was it that did that song? Uh, the seventy seventh. Was it the seventy seventh? Yeah. I couldn't remember. So, uh, so, yeah. So what that engenders in us again is is either pride or this this feeling that I have to hide this thing because yeah because I'll be you know pushed out of the community if I don't. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. The point you're raising, Todd, about this idea of. Um, teaching something that is a couple levels up from a biblical principle as if it is a biblical principle. Because then, like you said, what happens is the the barometer, which determines whether or not I hold to the principle is whether or not I actually have the TV because the TV becomes the principle. And so um, we lose the, yeah. the substrate underneath that, which is the argument as to why a TV might corrupt your relationship with God. It, it doesn't have to but it might because of X, Y, and Z principle, right. the principles were, would, would be the thing that we should be teaching, not TV or no TV, because then it becomes a, a the outward appearance becomes about whether or not we have the TV, even if we completely mm-hmm. miss the principle. And then that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing in that sense. Well, but we come by that naturally. Um, like 
and I've talked about this before, but and I wouldn't make a deep theology from this, but like even Adam and Eve, God said, um, don't, don't eat of the tree, uh, fruit of that tree or you'll die. But then when she's talking to the snake, she says, he said, we shouldn't, uh, eat of it or even touch it. And it's like, well, no, God didn't say don't touch it. He said, don't eat of it. Right. And, and so even in that moment, it's real subtle, it's real small, but she's, she's added, um, added to what God has said. And, and it's easy for us to do because we do have personal convictions mm-hmm. and we do have ideas about, well, if you want to live a holy life, this is how you do it. But the, the danger is when we, um, when we mix those things together and, uh, and it puts undue restraints on our people. It puts, yeah. you know, um, because then it's like, well, wait a second. If this is not biblical, what else is not biblical? It starts watering everything down. Right. So, so there's a good teaching principle in there, I think, in that um, you shouldn't teach about the manifestation, the specific manifestation of a biblical principle, unless you know you can trace it, trace the manifestation to the principle, and that the the, the pathway from the principle to the manifestation of that principle is sound. Yeah. And so, or, or be honest about, you know, hey, this is a personal conviction I have. This is not a biblical truth. This is something yeah. that's right for us. Because then again, at least you're being honest about it and you're letting people decide for themselves. Okay, is this a principle that's true for us as well or is this Well, and Paul does that, right? Mm-hmm. Like when he, does. he you know, he goes, "Hey, you know, here are these, you know, and I I'm I'm now I'm going blank on the the exact things, but he's talking about. I know there's a like women with a head covering and mm-hmm. you know long hair and that kind of thing. But then he he caveats all of that by saying, "But if any of you, you know, if anybody's contentious about this, if you disagree, yeah. there's no law, right? Right? There's no law for this." And so he says, "Hey, this is my recommendation. This is the thing that I feel strongly about, but yeah. there's no law about it." And I mean, if Paul's willing to do that, certainly we should be. Yeah. Yeah, that's man. That's a you could spend hours parsing out that that issue of the principle relating to the the issue at hand and how people mess up the specificity and all of that. And here's something I find really interesting too: is there's this crazy crazy thing that happens where that kind of legalism um, is simultaneously much more difficult than living with grace, but also less demanding. Right, uh, <laughs> because the demands of grace are that my entire life, yeah, is submitted and surrendered to God. That there is uh-huh. nothing that is off limits because of the grace that I have received. That God, everything, every that, whatever you want is yours, because of the great gift that I've received. Legalism says I will do these things, and they may be a little hard to do. Right, like I may not want to do it, but I will do these things. God, because now you owe me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so legalism is sometimes really hard, right? I mean, like, you know, like there are, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the the Pharisees were hedging the law in ways that, I mean, Jesus even said, you heap these huge loads on people's backs and you don't do anything to help them lift them at all, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and you're, you're making people twice the sons of hell that you are, you know? And so Jesus talks about how difficult legalism is. But the requirements of illegalism, the demands of legalism are actually much less stringent than the demands of grace because the demands of grace are that everything that I am belongs to God. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that's off limits. Yeah, that's... I was in a, um, 
I was in a group in junior high. We had a like a scooter club, and we were called Sons of Hell. Nice. Yeah, it was hardcore. <laughs> oh man, I wish we had pictures. <laughs> um, I had okay. to get my face tattoo removed after that. But <laughs> that's why, that's why you have the college. beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a Pikachu. <laughs> so, so we sketched out, I think, two ways, two important points for self-denial from a pastoral perspective. And then we can hit, I want to hit fear and trembling because there's like an interesting piece to that. Um, so to, to teach self-denial properly, you should, as a pastor, demonstrate the blessedness of a life that is lived appropriately with regards to self-denial. So people see how how blessed your life is in your close proximity to Christ, and they want to be where you are. And so then they, they ask the questions, okay, how can I get there? Okay, well, what do you have in your life that is getting in the way of this? And then that kind of maybe can open the conversation from there. Mm-hmm. And the second piece is with regards to Paul, he's telling the Philippians, you need to do this even when I'm not here. And so an important part of self-denial is, hey, your self-denial is not so that you can please your pastor. Your self-denial is so that you can honor God. And if you're finding yourself in that sort of hide the beer, the pastor's here mentality, Mm -hmm. then even what self-denial you do have probably isn't providing a return spiritually. Yeah. And it's just hurt. It's doing nothing but harm to you yeah. um, and probably those around you. Okay. So the fear and trembling piece, what do you guys make of Jesus saying that if your eye causes you to stumble, you should tear it out. And if your hand causes you to stumble, you should cut it off. Now, I think any person who's being honest, the first time they read that, if they read it and they believe it and they take it seriously, that's pretty terrifying to me. Yeah, sobering. Yeah. Right. And so like, what is, what is he getting to with that? Is it, is he just trying to impart the seriousness of spiritual corruption, which is a consequence of sin. Is, is he just saying that, look, you don't want, you really don't want this to happen. You, you might not want to cut your hand off. You might not want to scoop your eye out, but as bad as that sounds, you really don't want this to happen to you. Is that where he's going with it? Well, I think about um, like an animal caught in a trap that'll chew its own leg off to get it to escape. Like um, and the animals making a decision in that moment, right? I'm, I would rather, um, I, I would rather lose my leg or my foot and survive than sit here in this trap and die. Now, they're not thinking about it in exactly those terms, but they're still making a decision. And it, it is a very serious decision. And I th- and to me, this is what Jesus is after. He's, he's saying, hey, take sin seriously. Yeah. Approach sin in a way that uh, we don't. We don't look at it flippantly um, and, and not just sin, but if we approach sin seriously, we have to approach grace seriously. So we can't uh, dilute grace by cheapening sin because um, if we understand the weight of sin, we'll understand the weight of grace as well because they're doled out in equal parts, right? So like if the, where, the, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So so if we understand how how literally how grave sin is, then, um, then we understand what the consequences are. And, and I think, you know, the, the animal caught in a trap thing is appropriate because so many times we're caught up in sin and we don't recognize the fact that, Hey, I might have to sacrifice something to escape this sin, but ultimately it's going to be worth it. Um, so I might, I might lose something, but, so we could get into all kinds of depth with this, but at the end of the day, I really do feel like Jesus is just saying, 
you're not taking sin seriously yeah. enough and the consequences of sin and what it could be down the road. Because if you did, you would stop at no lengths to get that sin out of your life. Yeah, and so you might think of this like on a on a level on the ground, what we might see this as. I, I, an example that comes to my mind is, you know, when people start out drinking, I don't think anyone is starting out, well, yeah. I'm not going to say anyone, um, is starting out with the idea of I'm going to become an alcoholic and throw away half my life or right. my entire life to right. this activity. And yet... Lots of people, lots of people drink Mm -hmm. and some of them become alcoholics. Um, the, the carefree nature with which you might walk into a bar before you've lost half of your life to alcohol Mm -hmm. is a lot different from someone who's already gone through all that tribulation. And then they're like, I'm not even going one foot into that establishment. Mm -hmm. And they have kind of like a fear about Mm -hmm. it, a fear and a trembling, like a, I know the seriousness of this. And if I, if I go in there, I just, I'm going to end up in hell mm-hmm. essentially, even in, in the here and now in some sense. And so, well, maybe that's akin to kind of what Christ is trying to get us to with that. Okay. So some pastors, speaking of hell, some pastors and leaders find it hard to teach about hell while also remaining positive about the truth of the gospel. I think a perfect formula for how to teach about hell might elude us in this discussion. So tell me what are some wrong ways to teach about hell? What are some wrong ways that will (laughs) certainly cause problems for a Christian in terms of how they view God or their own salvation? You could get hit by a bus tonight. That's right. I I, I heard, I mean, Todd and I, we grew up in the same kind of, you know, style of churches, I think. And uh, I don't know how many times I heard something like that from the minister. And, um, and I mean, I'm only half joking when I say this, but it was like scared, scared the hell out of you. Right. Right. Like that's what their goal was. I want to scare you to heaven. And, uh, and it's like, that is some bad motivation. Like if my motivation for salvation is, uh, cause I, I honestly, when I was a kid, I heard a, um, a Sunday school teacher say, you don't want your mommy and daddy to be in heaven without you, do you? And it's like, sweet baby Jesus. Yeah. Like, what are we oh, doing yeah. to kids? Right. And so like, I, th- I would think, uh, that we can talk about hell in a context that is intentionally scary and manipulative. Now it is scary. It should be scary for us, but if our if our motivation is, I'm going to tell you about hell, and then you are yeah. going to run to sign up for salvation, then it's like we have we've missed the boat. Um, so I've heard that. Right. Um, that's that's probably the biggest one when you mention that. That just that's the that is the the foghorn in my mind that I you know been stuck on. I'm trying to remember. I mean, there's actually a, a place where. Paul kind of talks about that and says, look, if you could motivate people by fear, then great, you know, but that, mm-hmm. but he's essentially saying that doesn't work, right? Yeah. You, you, it doesn't have staying power. Right. It's a, it's only a temporary thing because, because, you know, after that moment's gone and life kind of gets back to normal, then, or, or even more dangerously, right? Let's say somebody they don't really have an affection for Jesus. The Holy Spirit yeah. didn't didn't really grip their heart in that moment. Yeah. They were just afraid. Nobody wants to go to hell, right? And so they say a prayer, mm-hmm. thinking, "Whew, here's my fire insurance. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm good now, right? 
But they didn't have an encounter with Jesus. They had an encounter with fear. Yeah. After the fear subsides, they go right back to living kind of, you know, what, how, however they were. They, they don't walk in relationship with Jesus. They haven't really trusted in Jesus. Yeah. They just, you know, they trusted, okay, I said this prayer, and, and now I'm, I'm good to go, you know? And so we've actually kind of alleviated a healthy fear by inciting uh, an unhealthy one. You know, it's a... Mm-hmm. It's a not good practice. So biblically, theologically, is hell presented as a deterrent for people? Is there a deterrent factor to it or is it Maybe, but I think it's more like for me, I think about it more as a consequence, like um like I I try not to produce uh, present hell as um stop what you're doing or this is what you'll end up right. getting. But like it is a natural consequence, but it's it's less a consequence of um, sin as much as it is of a, of a failure to choose Jesus. Yeah. Is that and maybe I'm yeah. No, I think you're absolutely hairs. right. I mean, sin is sin is where we're all headed. Right. Without Jesus. Right. Right. And so it's not like um, because of all the bad things that you've done, God's going to send you to hell. No. 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 We're all on our way to hell. Right. I've earned that. Yeah. God is offering us grace. God is offering us a way of escape. Yeah. That's a completely different ball game than you're earning hell by your deeds. Yeah. Yeah. So the deterrent factor is more or less nullified in the sense of, well, this is the default path. Like this is where we're, this is the boat all yeah. of us are in. Yeah. And the only way out of this boat is Jesus. All have sinned. Period. And so, right? yeah, and maybe, maybe part of the reason why. So, I'm hearing a lot of people um, these days kind of try to do away with the idea of hell, either mm-hmm. by way of universalism or by redescription of hell, so that it yeah. isn't Gehenna, isn't the you know mm-hmm. the eternal flame and all this. Um, do you think that part of the reason why we misunderstand hell or why we view hell? Or, part of the motivation for wanting to do away with the doctrine entirely is a bad understanding of total depravity. Like yes. it seems to me that that's, that's where the crux of this issue is, is that we, we think in terms of good people going to hell. Right. Mm-hmm. We all think we're basically good. We all think we deserve to go to heaven because we're good. Well, I'm, yeah. I've never killed anybody. Right. I've never cheated on my wife. So I mean, right. I'm basically a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, hopefully this doesn't get too clinical, but there's um there's an emergence of a new literature on what are called the dark tetrad personality traits, which are kind of like the opposite of the big five personality mm-hmm. traits. And they're like narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and sadism. And the reason why these are being more, you know, pe- people have known about these for a while, but yeah. the reason why they're sort of coalescing into this profile and why they're becoming more and more applicable we think is because of the internet. And th- so the internet is having some th- a similar effect that um, road rage has on people. Uh, so when you have road rage, um, you're anonymous and you don't make the clear connection that what you're saying is actually being delivered home to the person who you're mm-hmm. raging at. And so the restraints are lifted and the true version of you comes out. 
And that's terrifying to think about because people would think, you know, there's lots of people who are probably screaming at their wall right now saying, well, I'm not, it's not who I really am when I'm in road rage. Well, that's not obvious to me that that's not who you really are. Mm-hmm. Maybe that that, maybe that's who you are when you are not conscious of yeah. a judge and an ideal and you're, yeah. So maybe what's happening with these personality traits is that our ability to live virtually, to live online is showing how human beings really are. And it, and I, I don't think it's, I think it's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why I think this happens is because, so when you think about social media, social media, it doesn't sample uh, reality accurately, the, the reality that purports to represent. So it doesn't sample it Mm-hmm. accurately so as you develop a social media profile or or an online profile for that matter what you're developing is a delusion it's not actually who you are yeah and i think that the more disconnected you you come from the uh the sense of eyes observing you you then the true version of you starts to come forward and mm-hmm. like people talk about this you know they, they say I don't like what social media is making me become. I don't mm, like yeah. what it's doing to me. I think it's it's bringing out the worst in me, but it's like maybe the worst in you already was there. Mm-hmm. And it's just giving you conditions by yeah. which the worst can come forward. And if you start to see yourself that way, uh, your proclivity to judge other people and to think that you're better or righteous in any way whatsoever is obliterated. Mm-hmm. And then you start to see, okay, hell makes a little bit more sense yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. I would say that restraint is not necessarily evidence of basic human goodness, but rather evidence of God's common grace on all of us, Mm -hmm. right? The thing that prevents us from living into the worst parts of ourselves is God. It's his grace on us. Uh, And when we just chalk that up to, you know, well, people are basically good, then we we miss the fact that uh, in moments like that where restraint seems to be lifted what comes out of me is not basically good yeah i think it's to 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 understand or to to create the hypothesis that most people walking around are only not genocidal dictators because they lack a standing army (laughs) is scary yeah but it's like hey we i mean i don't know i think that that's i think that's more or less true well, but uh, so, I mean, gosh, this, this is a uh, multifaceted issue yes. and it is, it is a layered tapestry of, of evil and selfishness and all these things that it's like, this is postmodernism. This is nihilism. This is all these things we've talked about, but these aren't isolated things. They're all layered together. And ultimately what it comes back to is, you know, you mentioned the the doctrine of total, total depravity. We are evil. Like our hearts are far from God. We are uh, selfish by nature, and um, and there is no escape for that. Um, and hell is the destination where we will end up. But the truth is, um, um, Dostoevsky talks about hell on earth in a nihilistic world, right? So, like, real hell begins here. Um, and, and that's a consequence of living apart from God. And so can we scare people to heaven? Maybe, but even psychologically, they'll, psychologists will tell you that positive stimulus is 
is more long-lasting than negative stimulus. So as far as behavior modification and shifting thinking and things like that, positive stimulus always outweighs negative stimulus. So I think some of the preachers who have – maybe they believe in hell as a doctrine, but they just recognize it's much more fun to talk about grace. So I'm going to preach about grace. Well, I don't don't think they're evil necessarily, but – we're doing our church a disservice when we ignore it because, well, people don't want to hear this stuff. Um, and and so at the end of the day, I think we've got to talk about hell yeah, um, because it helps us confront our nature and who we are. But, man, when, when I just try to scare people, like, what's my motivation? Yeah, well, Dostoevsky is a good point there because if you can teach about the prospect of hell from a here and now perspective it's like when you start to see a society that's gone entirely reprobate it's almost like our warnings about hell or our scare tactics about hell don't go far enough right yeah compared to what you could actually experience in this moment if you go completely sideways yeah and so i think that yeah so you you teach the positive side of godliness and the, the the blessedness that comes with that and here's the thing people think that's just normal like they think that that's just the way people are mm-hmm. but it's just because we're all yeah why emerging do, out of this judeo-christian framework well why do i need salvation if i'm gonna get salvation anyway i'm a moral person i'm a good person right. why would i and so this is just the mindset that most people have um in our world and so that's why a, biblical arguments that worked 15 years ago do not work today because the Bible said so is an is an ineffective tool yeah. in a pastor's tool belt. Um, we've got to be able to explain to people and show people what it really looks like for them, no matter how moral or kind or good they might think they are. That ultimately, <laughs> this sounds horrible. <laughs> we we live um, in in a in a hellscape basically in a lot of ways. Um, that people aren't inherently good. They are inherently evil. Um, they're selfish. Um, you know, those aren't one-offs, you know, uh, they are all around us to some degree or another. Um, so yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to rant on the, the hellscape that our world has become. <laughs> right. Sorry. And I'm not going to remember, uh, the studies like I got offhand, but you know, there's kind of this basic idea, uh, Psychology in the in the in the 60s talked about how that you know basically if you if you leave a kid alone and allow them to make choices for themselves then then they will you know they'll be good right that they you know and uh and what they found out was the precise opposite right mm-hmm. that's 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 exactly what does not happen when when you cast off restraint when you allow a kid to just you know hey do whatever you'd like choose whatever you want well inevitably they will they will choose selfishness they will choose um you know uh to do things to the detriment of others so that they might benefit themselves they will tend toward rebellion and you know i mean like well, and even their own detriment, right? Yeah, Let's yeah. be honest. If you let your child, and your kids are not little, but you know, if you let your young child pick whatever they want to eat every day, they are not going to be thinking down the road and like, what is gonna, what is my body going to look like and feel like if yeah. I eat crap every day? But they will do it. They will eat cotton yeah. candy for breakfast if you let them. And, and so it will hurt themselves even. And I think humans are just like that. We will make decisions that are bad for others but ultimately even bad for ourselves when we're left to our own devices. Right. I mean, and 
And we see it in our culture, yeah. right? We see the the fruit of that in our culture. And I don't want to get into all the weeds about, you know, uh, what's going on in terms of, of gender identity and all those kind of things, but I, it, it is the fruit of these kinds of thinking. Um, and, you know, Proverbs says that where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. Yeah. And and we live in a society now, and, and we have to... It, to bring this back to church leadership, right? As leaders in the body of Christ, we have to cast a compelling vision to our people, right? So that so that we aren't swept away by the winds of culture, so that we know how to um, address and and um, and confront some of these things where our culture is casting off restraint in ways that are tearing down uh, the, the 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 family structure in ways that are detrimental to people's um, flourishing as individuals, right? Uh, and so, you know, we have to understand what the Word of God says about mm-hmm. these things. We have to know what it means for us to to have grace and stand on, you know, and and like stand firm in the principles of God's word at the same time that there these are going to become huge issues for us as leaders in the church and not just in every regard because the tendency of our culture you know not just our culture but our tendency as sinful humans is to do just that to cast off restraint because we we lack a vision of 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 the you know, of what God wants to build mm-hmm. in us. And so, okay, so it seems to me, and I think this is a controversial opinion, it seems to me like one of the biggest mistakes that the American church has made is to suggest that Christ-like goodness and morality is possible outside of Christ. And we do this, I know we do this, I know that our society does this because we call it humane. Sure. That's the term we use for mm-hmm. it. Oh, this is so inhumane. Well, it's like, I'm not confident that humane is Christ-like. And it just happens to be that humane has been Christ-like in America because of the Judeo-Christian framework from Mm -hmm. which the society emerged. Now, if that's the case, then we should assume that if a person is humane, that they are at least making some contact with Christ-like precepts and obeying them. But that opens many cans of worms when it comes to how we teach about those sorts of things, like Mm -hmm. how we teach about morality and kindness and this. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we do favors toward the doctrine of hell or the, you know, even the doctrine of total depravity. If we suggest that morality and goodness after the manner of Christ are consequent of anything other than Christ. So Mm -hmm. like we could say, you could try to make an evolutionary argument for it, but I don't think you really can in some sense, because here's the deal. Raccoons aren't building death camps, you know, like that's not, they're, they're not, they might be able to practice reciprocity for the sake of natural advantage. Yeah. And we have that to some extent in, in our uh, species and who we are as humans, but the depths of evil, yeah. there doesn't seem to be anything advantageous about that. And, and look, biblically, I think, I really, I think that when we lose contact with what evil is, when we, we stop seeing it in our society, that's when we fall. Mm -hmm. And then it's not until we 
see it again, that we also see God. And I think that that's the cyclical yeah. judgment of the societies throughout the scriptures. I mm-hmm. think it's, it's, it's of a piece. Look, I think it's Josiah is, is the king who that the priests go into the temple and they find the scriptures and they bring it to him and he just tears his clothes because his eyes are opened mm-hmm. at that moment. It's like, oh, we've been doing this wrong for a long time, for generations. Now we need to repent. Now we need to reform. But none of that becomes clear until the contrast becomes clear. And right. I think that we are a generation of past of pastors who are living at the edge of what was a morally prosperous society, a society done right, mostly right. And because of that, we've confused, we've come to this confusion that morality and goodness and kindness are both possible and natural, maybe not natural, because I think most pastors understand that they, the, the sinfulness of man and all this, but that those things, to live those things authentically is possible as a human outside mm-hmm. of Christ. And I'm not sure that it is. No, no, I, I, yeah, I don't think it is. And that's where even, you know, in the context of relationships, we'll talk about healthy relationships is one of our core values. So even in the context of healthy relationships, it's impossible for me to be the husband that the Bible calls me to be outside of Christ. Yeah. Cause you know, Paul said to the church at Ephesus, Love your wife sacrificially, like Christ loved the church, right? So he said, this is how you do it. And we think we're doing a good job, but we're not. You know, so I have to have the help of Christ living in me, the spirit of Christ um, working in me to do that. Same thing, you know, my wife, um, she is honoring to me, but she's incapable of really honoring me the way Christ calls her to outside of Christ. So, I mean, I think framing... Framing those things in a way that um, maybe maybe not expecting people to hold the same worldview we do would be helpful to just um, stop assuming that and frame these kind of conversations that way where we tell people, um, hey, it's impossible to be moral. You know, it's impossible for you to be the worker in your workplace you need to be. It's yeah. impossible for you to be the dad. It's impossible for you to aspire to those things and achieve those things outside the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. Um, but I think, I don't even think pastors maybe do it on purpose. I think we just assume that we have a common language and they'll understand what I'm saying. And so what happens is we perpetuate that idea that you're talking about, that it's possible to be moral outside of Christ because we don't explicitly say that uh, it's not. Yeah, well, that's kind of like the chief reason why Americans don't come to Christ in some sense because they say, well, I'm, I'm okay, I'm doing fine. Like Absolutely. I have a good family, mm-hmm. I have all these things. Well, it's like, why don't we give credit to the fact that they have a good family and say, hey, you're practicing Christ-like principles. You're closer than you think. Yeah. Like you're already closer than you think. Yeah. Well, we equate sinfulness with choices, right? Well, if I'm yeah. making good choices, well, yeah. I'm not a sinner. Well, yeah. That's not true, right? Look, <laughs> the shirt I'm wearing today may have been a bad choice. It's not sin, right? <laughs> you, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, sin is a different thing. Mm-hmm. Sin is the wickedness that's in our heart. Sin is like... Well, it's a condition. It, it's yeah, not a choice. It's yeah. not, and, and, and we talk about choices. Well, if you'll just, you know... The, these are the results of the bad choices that you've made. And there's some truth to that. Yeah, you're in the place that you are in your life because you've made some <laughs> bad choices. 
But you, we make those choices because we are infected with sin, right? Uh, and we have to talk about that. We have to we have to talk about what the scriptures say in regard to those things, and recognize that every one of us is infected by it. Every yeah. one of us is is marred by and marked by sinfulness, uh, and that no amount of good choices that I make erases that problem. That is that is only met in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we uh, we mentioned scary things Jesus said. So here's another one, and um, I think that this would be a good place for us to land the plane. Um, in Matthew chapter five, verse thirty-two, Jesus says that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Does this mean that it's impossible to go through a divorce absent infidelity without also committing adultery? And what does it mean for women who have been divorced? We're going to finish with the light stuff, huh? Yeah, the easy one. <laughs> um, so, so give it a little context. Pastors are listening to this. They, some of them could probably explain this better than I could. But uh, essentially, I, I think the context of this was that men could divorce women very, very easily right. in that context. Um, they could literally get rid of their wife because they didn't like her cooking. Absolutely. There, yeah. there was literally any reason. Um, so, And there was no hope for a woman who'd been divorced. If she'd been divorced, uh, it was as if she was widowed. It was probably worse than if she was right. widowed, actually. And so from a societal perspective, they were destitute. And it, um, the, the system um, – it kind of paved the way for men to victimize women and to take advantage of women for selfish gains and then just move on with their lives. So it created these two classes of people from that. Right. So and, I'll get rid of this wife because I don't like her and I'll get a better one. Right. I'll upgrade. And, and yeah. because I've issued her a decree of divorce, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not committing adultery because I've given her a certificate mm-hmm. of divorce. I've right. done this legal thing, right? And so it's, I'll get rid of her and I'll get a better one. That's the motivation that I think underlies this, which is important. That's to, something I think a lot of people don't realize too, is that they, I don't think people realize that the society that Jesus is in at this moment, divorce is so casual and common, mm-hmm. even compared to our own. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's with no fault divorce. I think we're probably heading closer toward that direction, Yeah, but it's, it's not, it's maybe still not as easy to navigate those waters as it would be back then. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking about the office. I declare bankruptcy. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, understanding that context in a general sense helps us understand Jesus' words more. Because what Jesus is really trying to do is um, lend weight to the covenant of marriage first. Um, help them understand, hey, this is something that's serious. Because uh, even, and, and Todd, you could probably speak to this more, but even the way Jesus talks about marriage and talks about Adam and Eve, and um, he he is lending credibility to the institution of marriage right. and weight to the institution of marriage. And so when he sees people treating it so flippantly, number one, and number two, when there are definite victims from that behavior, then Jesus is trying to put a stop to this. And so um, we still, and, and, and I take divorce very, very seriously. Um, and I will still have people sit in my office and say things like, I'm just so unhappy 
Okay, tell me about that. Let's walk through that. Well, they just here's what's going on, and I don't want to make light of this, but but there at the end of the day, it's like you don't have a biblical reason to get divorced other than you don't like them very much anymore. Right. Um, that's a bad reason to get divorced um, because you know Paul again. I'll refer back to Ephesians five. He talks about marriage. Um, and the church in the same breath. And he says that they mirror one another, right? So it's important for us to understand that we should approach um, we should approach marriage in the same way, a lot of ways that we approach our relationship with God, that kind of covenant and that kind of intimacy and that kind of commitment, that it's not just, hey, I'm going to do this until I'm unhappy and then I'm going to do something else. Because even though that's not the exact same thing Jesus was talking about, it's kind of the same thing. Like, you don't make me happy. I'm done with you. I'm going to move on. Right. And uh, and this is what Jesus is trying to caution people about and help them see. This is much weightier than that. Yeah. Uh, and there are some easy ones. I mean, I, I've had to counsel uh, people that were in abusive relationships that, that they needed to get out of the home. And, and maybe you don't divorce, but maybe you separate for the purpose of trying to work through the marriage. And then there's been a few times that I've told them, like, this behavior is not going to change. You need to, you need divorce. You, you have biblical grounds for divorce, so you need to get a divorce. But I don't think it's the scarlet letter that it was at one point, but I also feel like the pendulum's kind of swung the other way in most churches where it's like, ah, whatever, it's no big deal. Yeah. Uh, where we won't even counsel people to stay together because it's hard. Yeah, and so we need, so Christ is bringing in this reminder and we probably will need this reminder in the in the days ahead as a church and as a, as a society that even if the cost of divorce is not being institutionalized in your law as a society or in right. your culture, the cost is still there and you're going to pay it. Right. And that's yeah. a spiritual cost. That's a familial cost. That's a relational cost. It just sets off a hand grenade of destruction into your life. And you should take that seriously, even if culturally and, and legally it's not being mm-hmm. taken seriously. Right. And really this ties all the way back to what we started our conversation with is about self-denial, right? Like if I understand that there is there are things at stake that are much bigger than whether or not I'm happy in this moment, right? Which, by the way, the word happy has the same root as the word happenstance, right? So it changes when our circumstances change, and it's fleeting, and it has nothing to do with true joy and contentment and things that will actually carry us when things are not going well. And so if you're worried about being happy in the first place, you're really worried about the wrong thing because it's temporary. I may not be happy tomorrow because it's raining, right? Mm -hmm. But it's going to stop raining. And so I don't despair because it's raining because it's going to stop, you know, but, but we get, we go, oh no, I'm not happy. I got to change my whole life because I'm not happy right now. It's like, no, 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 that, you know, anyway, so going back, it it all ties back to that idea of being willing to, to deny ourselves. Right. And if, if, if what I'm demanding is I have to have my way or I will leave this relationship. I will break covenant with you mm-hmm. because I'm not getting what I want. Well, that's the complete opposite of self-denial, mm-hmm. right? It's the indulgence of self to the degree that I am willing to bring 
bring harm to my children, bring harm to the family structure, uh, dishonor the commitment that I've made before God, uh, you know, all kinds of bad things come out of that, right? I mean, if you if you're a kid who grew up in the product as a product of a divorce, you understand the devastation that that brings. You understand the brokenness that that happens. Uh, the, it, more like divorce is like the greatest uh, in, like indicator of poverty. Like people, women live below the poverty level. Like b- divorce is like the the number one cause of that, right? I, you know, and so there are all kinds of things that are devastating that come out of that as a result of our selfishness, really, mm-hmm. is what it boils down to. So rather than doing the work of, you know, creating a family that that is living by the principles of God's Word and is receiving the blessing that God's Word says comes along with those things, we just go... Yeah, too hard. I'm out. Yeah, so self-denial brings peace and stability, and the complete absence of self-denial brings chaos and disorder and dysfunction and all kinds of negative feelings and just bad stuff. And and if you think that you're special enough to avoid those consequences or you'll be able to navigate them in a way that you won't have to pay the consequences, then I advise you refer back to Jesus's previous comments <laughs> about cutting off your hand. <laughs> well, and, and sometimes I'll have couples that'll be sitting with me and I've, I've jokingly said that, um, you know, Todd or, or, or so another associate pastor does pre-marriage counseling and I do pre-divorce counseling because a lot of times they'll come to me when they're like, we've tried everything, we're yeah. done, what do you think? And they really want me to go, yeah, you're right, you're right. Right. Um, but, and, and I've said this more times than I can count now, but um, I've told couples Hey, if I wanted to go run a marathon tomorrow, I couldn't. And it's not because of what I had for lunch today. It's because of what I've been eating and what I've been doing for the last 15, 20, 30 years. It's taken me a long time to get to the place in my physical health that I am today. Um, That's caused me to get to the place where if I wanted to go run a marathon, I absolutely could not do it tomorrow. Could I run a marathon? Absolutely I can, but I'm going to have to change my behavior. I'm going to have to change my, um, my values. I'm going to have to change my diet. Like, and it's going to be a lot of stinking work. It's going to be hard to do that. I have to have the right motivation to do it. And, and so when I tell couples this, that, hey, there's hope, but it's going to be really hard. You can almost, uh, most times, you can almost see the despair on their face. Yeah. Like, oh, I wanted an easy answer. It's right. like, there is no easy answer. Like, you guys dug yourself a gigantic hole, and you're unhappy, and that stinks. I hate it that you're unhappy. But it's going to take time to get out of the hole, but you can do it. And it's like, oh, because it's hard, and we don't want hard. We don't want sacrifice. We right. don't want self-denial. We want somebody fix this problem, and it's just um, and it's not that easy. And I, and I really do think there's a correlation between our relationship with God and our relationship with our spouse and that, you know, both these are covenants and it's so easy for me to walk away for statistically speaking from marriage, right? Well, I'm unhappy. I'm going to walk away from it. And I really do think there's an, an association to some degree with our walking away from relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, not talking about losing your salvation necessarily, but just walking away from your relationship with the church with, because it's easy to break covenant, right? If I don't feel like it, if I'm unhappy, if I'm not getting what I want, then I'll walk away. And um, and I think there's a correlation there with a, a lot of Americans in the church as well. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's a great place to bring this to a close, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, let me say one more thing. I uh, I have a heavy metal band, and we're coming out with our new album. Our new album is dropping next week. It's called uh, Raccoon Death Camp, and so uh, it'll be on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you download music. I bet they'll be riding scooters, too. <laughs> Probably. Yes. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.